episode 310, the 2020 Shkreli Awards for the worst examples of profiteering and dysfunction in healthcare. Today, I speak with Dr. Vikas Sani and Shannon Brownlee. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The Shkreli Awards have been published each year for the past five years and counting by the Lown Institute. The Shkreli Awards are a much-anticipated top 10 list of the worst examples of profiteering and dysfunction in healthcare. This year's list, celebrating the most excellently egregious profiteering in 2020, are unique in the sense that everybody on the list this year, every one of them, decided deliberately, that a pandemic might be a super opportunistic global stroke of luck to exploit fear and anguish to line their own pockets. The list is named for Martin Shkreli, the price hiking, in quotes, pharma bro, that is easy to point to as a model of pure, unadulterated healthcare profiteering. Here's the point. Just because you can be clever and shifty enough to make a whole lot of money in healthcare doesn't mean you should. Every dollar anyone earns without adding commensurate value back is just one more nail in the financially toxic coffin that patients and employers face in this country and taxpayers. The Lown Institute is a nonpartisan think tank advocating bold ideas for a just and caring system for health. Their work is centered around four main topics, low value or unnecessary care, accountability, health equity, and the human connection. Today, I am looking so forward to speaking with Vikas Sani, MD, and Shannon Brownlee from the Lown Institute about this year's Shkreli Award winners. I wish I had a soundtrack of audience clapping. I'd cue it right now. There are 10 winners, and we talk about most of them today. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. I am very pleased to have the Lown Institute on the show today talking about the Shkreli Awards. Vikas Sani, MD, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having us. Delighted to be here. And Shannon Brownlee. Nice to be here. Let's talk about the awards this year. We're coming out of COVID. This is a very distinctive time and place in the time-space continuum. Is there a way that you summarize like who your contestants and winners were for 2020? I've been thinking about it really as a case in which COVID was like a just blinding flash, just a glare of x-ray that revealed everything kind of going on in the healthcare system. A lot of flaws, a lot of fragmentation, a lot of dysfunction, all of which has always been there. But with COVID, it all got thrown into sharp relief. In addition to just sort of the dysfunction, the other thing I guess that we're talking about, what also became apparent is the, maybe for the opportunistic who care less about patient outcomes and a little bit more about making money, that also. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things about this I think is worth saying is that, which is kind of why we're doing the Shkreli Awards, really. I mean, It's a little bit about pointing to individual examples, but it's more about painting the whole picture. You know, the whole picture is that our norms for what's okay, you know, seem to have deteriorated. And I think it's more about norms and culture than laws. Because remember, Shkreli, 
everything Shkreli did himself and a lot of what we call out this year, all perfectly legal. I mean, that's not really the point here. The point is what's okay to do. And with the theme of COVID in mind and the word profiteering, which we kind of use as part of the definition of who gets into the <laughs> the pantheon of winners of the Shkreli Award, profiteering is, you know, making a lot of money and unreasonable profit on the sale of goods or services, especially during a time of emergency. And that's certainly what we've seen during COVID is that a lot of this stuff goes on all the time, but it's it sort of got stepped up in this period when everybody's afraid, everybody is, you know, there's this shared misfortune. Now, you used a term earlier, you used a word, Dr. Sani, which I made a note of, which is deteriorating. Do you feel like as time goes on that like if this was 1918 pandemic, that there would be a little bit less profiteering than there might be now? And I know that was quite a long time ago. So maybe a more like if this was the, if this was the 80s, you know, like this is a trend. My reference point is my own lifetime. And, you know, so I don't know about the 1918 pandemic and profiteering. There's always profiteering, you know, whenever there's a buck to be made and there's opportunities for certain kinds of exploitation in emergencies, it happens. My perspective is that it feels a lot more systematic. That has something to do with how our healthcare system is is operating these days. And I think the deterioration is is complex. It's not any one thing. You can't blame one piece of it. You know, it's not just fee-for-service or it's not just, you know, volume-based payment. There are all sorts of other dimensions. And, and it does feel like any opportunity to make an extra buck. It's not, you know, these are not people who are starving or on death's door or facing homelessness or catastrophe. You know, these are people who by and large, are doing really well already. And this just, you know, seems like kind of like, how much is enough? The Shkreli's this year could be divided into, let's just say, four main thematic areas. We got doctors, we got industry, we got hospitals, we've got government. Do you want to just talk a little bit about like how you may have arrived at those four themes from the overall contestant pool? Well, we had quite, we had a very large contestant pool to start with. The field. And, um, <laughs> the field was a rich one. We effectively gave our judges a lot of latitude in terms of, of how they ranked. The, I think they started with something like 30. We winnowed it down to start. And then we gave them a large number to look at. And they basically ranked them and put them in rank order. And then we looked at everybody's ranking and kind of sifted through them. But I think, you know, you've just touched on the kind of major players in the healthcare industrial complex, except for patients. So we've got doctors, we've got the manufacturing side, pharma, device makers, we've got hospitals, we've got government. Although we didn't have a category for one special one, which was Jim Baker, televangelist Jim Baker, selling stuff that doesn't work. But the categories that this falls into is really the stakeholders in healthcare. Yeah. Well, the one missing category would be the insurance industry. Oh, yes. And really, that's an interesting issue because they have also, by and large, made out like bandits, mostly because there was they kept collecting the premium. So they get, yeah. kept collecting the money to pay. But there was such a huge drop off in healthcare activity that the money just piled up in their coffers. So in a sense, they didn't have to do anything. They just sat there and they started seeing, you know, these uh, results. 
And yet they're raising prices again this year. Well, we'll see um, who shows up on the awards next year, I guess. We'll see, we'll, <laughs> exactly. we'll see how that trajectory right. pans out. sequel. So let's talk about doctors, which is, you know, maybe the first thematic industry stakeholder here. We have number eight coming in at number eight on your list, Connecticut internist Stephen Miller, MD. Do you want to talk about Dr. Miller, anybody? At one level, it's it's very straightforward. You know, he ran COVID testing sites in Connecticut towns. You know, essentially from the reporting in the New York Times and other sources in the media, you know, what he did was he added on lots of extra tests besides the coronavirus test and then routinely billed the insurers for this large panel of testing. Then he charged the insurance companies more just to give the patients or the residents the results over the phone. So at least the Times estimated this is something like $2,000 a person. Yeah, I kind of remember actually reading a story about a woman who thought, you know, because coronavirus testing was supposed to be free. So she thought it would be free. And then somehow or another, I don't know if the lab was out of network. I don't know exactly what happened with her insurance there or deductible or whatever. But like she got a bill for two grand or something for all these tests that she didn't even know, you know, she was getting tested for. And at that point, she's on the hook. Like I said, it illustrates what business as usual is like. I mean, why is that even a thing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's business as usual on steroids, though, you know, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to our next category of industry, we have number five on the list, which are the pharmaceutical giants AZ, AstraZeneca, GSK, Pfizer, and J&J. How'd they get on your list? So this is, I think, another example of, you know, people not adjusting their mindset to the current condition and, and the emergency of the condition. And I think it also raises other questions, you know, which are sort of a little deeper in the layers on on the Shkreli Awards and, and this topic generally, which is how much is enough? I mean, what number is the right number? And I saw just yesterday, I think in the Wall Street Journal or a few days ago in one of the financial papers, people are, antici- Pfizer and, and others are anticipating, you know, bumper pr- profits. And I'm not saying they don't deserve to make money given what they've managed to do. I mean, I think that's not the question. Really, the question is, you know, how much is enough? And if we're going to have a better healthcare system, you know, we're not going to get there just by doing everything we've always done before without questioning it. So for us, in some ways, that's another role for the Shkreli Awards, you know, really to say we shouldn't be shy about asking these questions and getting some answers and having that debate. Just to add insult to injury on this, government funding played a big role in the basic research that went into these vaccines. And this is something that's coming up time and time again, is that drug prices and now vaccine prices are very high. And the justification for that is that the industry puts so much money into the development of these products. But in fact, government funding played a crucial role in about half of the 500 drugs that have been approved in the last 25 years. So we do have to start asking some hard questions about who is supposed to benefit from the kinds of public funding that goes into these kinds of products, vaccines and drugs. There's all these trust surveys, you know, which industries are the most trustworthy and not. And the pharma industry, I think they're behind insurance salespeople at this juncture and used car hawkers. 
So this could have been a really amazing opportunity to reverse some of that loss of trust that has been transpiring over the years. And I do feel like to a certain extent, reputations did improve. It's just, it just feels a little bit of a shame that this is kind of a drag on what could have been an amazing opportunity to really shine and show that they really are patient first that they didn't take advantage of. And I'll add that, you know, I want to salute all the workers in all those companies. I know for a fact that, you know, people have spent, you know, long hours, nights and weekends, you know, around the vaccine and other things and have been going pedal to the metal. And all of that is really, really critical and important and ought to be recognized and ought to be praised. But I don't think those folks who did all that work were making the pricing decisions. So this is really more about leadership than it is about, you know, the sector itself. We also have in our industry category, two private equity owned companies that provide physician staffing for hospitals. The thing about private equity that I think probably should get said right at the start is that the business model really is profiteering in healthcare. In other words, you know, the way that works is, wow, where the margins great. They're great in healthcare. We got to get in there and do our thing. But in this instance, you know, they sort of have aligned themselves with some of the worst aspects of the healthcare system, i.e. out of network surprise billing creating many local monopolies and then exploiting those and jacking up prices. They got named number 10 on, on this year's list. This was really about the fact that they spent millions of dollars on political ads lobbying against surprise billing legislation. While they were doing all of that lobbying and spending all those millions of dollars, they then applied for interest-free loans from the CARES Act and they got $60 million, one of them. So it's kind of like corporate welfare at its worst. Well, and I don't know if they were docking the pay of the, the doctors who actually worked for them, but they were certainly not, they're, they're not sharing that money with the doctors necessarily. So they were lobbying for surprise billing. Mm -hmm. I, in there, I had um, Lauren Adler from the Brookings Institute on the show two shows ago talking about the surprise billing legislation. And I mean, they were in their lobbying papers that actually explained quite clearly that surprise billing was part of their business model. So at the same time that they were lobbying and millions of dollars towards that, then they're taking money on the CARES Act and laying off doctors. Well, and cutting their pay and benefits yep. for the ones who stay on. So they, so the doctors basically get to spend really long hours taking care of patients if they work in the hospital, and they're seeing their pay and their benefits cut. So let's move on to hospitals. We have California hospital systems that are refusing to take COVID-19 patients. Do you want to talk about that? In some ways, this is also business as usual. They weren't just refusing to take COVID-19 patients. They were refusing to take COVID-19 patients who were insured by Medicaid, which is a payment that is lower than what they get from patients who are insured by private insurers or even by Medicare. And so they were being very selective in who they didn't want, yet they had open beds. Yeah, I mean, the Wall Street Journal reported on this and they had internal emails, you know, talking about their refusals and the delays. You know, this had to do with COVID, for God's sake. This had to do with ICU beds, critical illness and the like. And some of these hospitals apparently had, you know, more than 120 ICU beds available. And they were just, uh, you know, putting up the no room at the inn sign. I mean, it really puts the lie to the statement that at least one official has made, which is, you know, we're all in this together. Well, yeah, as long as you're not insured by Medicaid. 
Then we have another conflict of interest situation with a senior leader at a health system. I know we had one last year and it looks like we have another one this year. This, I think, is another example of what I think of as the kind of same pattern that's been, what's the phrase, you know, go along and get along. And and there's been certain arrangements and it's all, you know, gradually just become normalized. But in this instance, you know, it was, again, egregious because of the pandemic. And that was... In the case of the CEO of the Brigham Women's Hospital, who, while sitting on the board of Moderna and holding stock options in Moderna, was writing op-eds defending high drug prices as critical to innovation and never really disclosed that, you know, she had this conflict. And I think, you know, the issue there was that it was part and parcel of this sort of bigger pattern. And the Boston Globe reported on this uh, quite a bit. You know, the board of the Brigham was aware of the all these arrangements and the board thought it was fine, which kind of illustrates the normalization that I'm talking about. In the end, she has resigned from the board of the Brigham, I'm sure for many other reasons besides this one. You know, this is to say that people do a lot of good things and they can be very good and very successful in, in many dimensions. But there's a sort of winner-take-all culture that's emerged in the last 10 to 20 years. And it just, again, when you shine the light of the pandemic on it, it suddenly doesn't look so great. We have also another one with hospitals, which is punishing clinicians for, in air quotes, scaring the public, suspending and firing them because they insisted on wearing N95 masks and other protective equipment in the hospital. I just don't understand any explanation for that. I mean, the idea that this was going to scare patients. You know, doctors and nurses wear masks all the time. In fact, one would think that it would make patients feel a little bit safer in the sense that, you know, their doctors and nurses are taking care not to infect them. But... Maybe these hospitals had a shortage of PPE and this was their way of saying, you know, you don't get to wear PPE. I would imagine that some of this was very early on in the pandemic. And so in a sense, I see this behavior partly as being part of that early phase, generalized denial on the part of large swaths of the leadership of this country about what it was and what was going to happen. And so in that sense, quote unquote, scaring patients implies, you know, this isn't so bad. It's just the flu. Stop doing this. You know, we got elective surgeries to do or whatever it was. And I think that dimension is kind of the other one to point out here, because some people wanted to use N95 masks. They kind of knew what was going on. And the people who who weren't, who were recommending not to use N95 masks, including famously, the CDC at one point talking about how, you know, general public doesn't really need N95 masks. One, what they were really should have said and were saying was that we screwed up. We don't have enough. And so certain people need to get them and they take priority. That would have been an honest thing to say. And that would have been accepted, I, I believe. So this whole sort of period, I think, represented a time when when a lot of people were blindsided by what was happening. And Sadly, you know, people in the know, in the epi communities, and you know, people with experience with SARS, you know, early on, a lot of people could have connected those dots and were connecting those dots then, but uh, we're just not listened to. It definitely sounds like saying something like that, which in hindsight and maybe even at the time just seems wholly 
strange, exactly like you just said. Like, why is it scare, would scare a patient to have a mask on? It just seemed like a very ill-concealed attempt to figure out a way to justify or rationalize some decision-making or goings-on. All right, let's get to the top of the list here. We're moving into the government category. The number one winner of the Shkreli Award in this kind of thematic bucket was the federal government and Jared Kushner, who led the PPE Procurement Task Force. I think we're almost both speechless because it's so astonishing. (laughs) It's just so astonishing that this was how the federal government chose to deal with the problem of not enough PPE and how to distribute it and how to distribute it quickly. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, gave supplies that were airlifted from overseas. They gave these supplies to six private medical supply companies to sell to the highest bidder. And so there was this bidding war among the states. Yeah, it really is that sort of market fundamentalism run amok. I mean, you know, in the midst of this, uh, the equivalent, functional equivalent of war, I mean, it'd be kind of like asking soldiers to just go buy their weapons on eBay and get the best dollar value and the best functionality on their own. I mean, come on. I think that the other dimension to this is really that there was probably a sense, I mean, I don't know enough about the background here, but and it certainly warrants a lot more scrutiny, if only to figure out how not to do things next time. But, you know, there really is this sense that there's only a certain path that's available. You got to go to these companies and these companies then on their own have to do it because we don't have any channels of distribution otherwise. And there's some truth to that. Like if I were faced with this dilemma, I'd have to say, all right, what's the fastest way you can get things out to people? But when you do that and you cut those deals, part of the deal is, you know, you damn well insist on certain terms for how they're going to do this. And it doesn't look like that's what happened. Or if it did, then there were additional sort of terms here that had to do with, I don't know if hoarding is the right word, but created a a complete competition between the federal government and the states, which is the exact opposite of what you need in an emergency like this. And it led to this really terrible situation where, you know, there were these designated pandemic hotspots, which were counties where case numbers were rising very, very rapidly. And those were exactly who didn't get the PPE from Project Airbridge. I mean, that's nuts. That's complete incompetence in addition to all the other sort of unethical pieces of this. Speaking of another government winner, we have poor nursing home decisions. You know, that's a tough one on many on many levels. I mean, it is a sector that has really kind of long been neglected. It probably needs a lot more oversight and regulation. You know, here in Massachusetts, we really had, you know, one of those examples, the soldier's home, a veteran's nursing home, where because of short staffing, you know, they had to combine the COVID unit with a dementia unit. And guess what happened? You know, the virus spread even more and there were a lot more deaths. And that's true really nationwide that nursing home residents have had disproportionate number of deaths. Now, you know, nursing home patients are elderly. They have a lot of other conditions. And so, you know, their death rates would be high with any particular insult like this infection. So I think we have to be a little 
careful in, in over-interpreting some of those numbers. But at the end of the day, it, it really is true that the staffing levels, the sort of uh, infection control measures, all of those are, are relatively unregulated. And that's almost certainly doubly true in the for-profit uh, nursing homes versus the nonprofit. It's really a complicated case, but one in which we got to do better and we can do better. And so that's, I think, why they ended up on the list. Let's get into why the Shkreli Awards. I mean, there is a thing called the Hawthorne effect, which is basically if you look at something, behavior will change. So I could definitely see that there's an element of that here, that merely by calling attention to these kinds of behaviors that have, for however reason, become normalized, that maybe there's a way to curb that behavior in the future? I think this actually does go back to what Vikas said originally and what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is most of this is not illegal. It's merely unethical. You know, so there's no prosecutor who's going to change most of this. It has to come from a change in the sort of cultural norms inside of healthcare and in what patients expect out of healthcare by basically putting these actions on the part of people together and having them under a name like Martin Shkreli's, it gives a label to the behavior that we hope will make people think about it very differently. Because when it just gets reported in the paper, you know, the paper isn't going to call it profiteering. They're going to simply say, you know, this happened. By kind of collecting them at the end of the year, it's a way of reminding everybody, hey, this is business as usual and it's not pretty. Invoking the Hawthorne effect is, I think, probably a good way of thinking about it. Uh, you know, we don't expect that the Shkreli Awards by themselves are going to, you know, make major change in legislation or practices. But as Shannon said, we do think that it helps illustrate by putting them all together, collecting them all in one place, you kind of get a mosaic and you get a picture of what happened this past year. And I think that does create a, a counter narrative about what should be the norms. What are the norms, but what should be the norms? And I think that's part of our goal. We're just kind of collecting a lot of what journalists and media outlets have done over the course of the year and kind of curating them a little bit. Part of our theory is that if we can do that and people can begin to see that mosaic for what it is, it will begin gradually, slowly to change some minds. So, so that's, I think, what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. I think absolutely, the more you shine a light on things, the more people start to say, oh, somebody's watching. I wonder if I should really be doing this. Sunshine being the best disinfectant. I mean, I think the other value of the Shkreli Award really is that when people read these things and they read these things, as Shannon says, uh, reported as, as facts, that has an impression, but quite often there's, it's limited to grumbling, right? It's limited to hallway, when we were at work in hallway conversations or water cooler conversations. And that kind of private skepticism or, or, or private, you know, disapprovals, really, that kind of private disapproval has some value, but I think there's greater value when it's public. And so our view is that, you know, there really is a radically better healthcare system that's possible, but we're not really going to get there if, if people are shy about talking publicly about some of these issues. I think that's the first step in making things better is to admit that we have the problem. In many ways, part of 
the role we see for ourselves is really just to bring them all together and sanction the idea that it's okay to have these conversations and really start moving in a direction that's very different. Well, I mean, I also can see that it's kind of making sure that the patient's voice gets a seat at the table, because obviously there's a lot of private conversations that are going on internal to these organizations relative to the fiscal viability of whatever they're trying to do. It's not like that just happened. You know, somebody had a meeting and made a choice. So, you know, making sure that the impact on the larger healthcare community or the patient is clearly articulated. I think definitely, I can see your point. Does one of you want to just explain, besides the Shkreli Awards, what do you guys do over there at the Lown Institute? One of the main things that we do is something called the Lown Hospitals Index, Lown Institute Hospitals Index. We're now moving into getting ready to release the results of our second index, It's an assessment of hospitals on a number of dimensions, some of which have never been considered in looking at the performance of hospitals. So we look at clinical performance, certainly the outcomes of patients, but we also look at rates of overuse, overtreatment, giving patients treatments that they don't need or not terribly effective. And we look at something that we called civic responsibility. We looked at the data that was out there and we decided that we wanted to create a picture of hospitals activities in the realm of their own civic leadership, community leadership. So we looked at their community benefits investments. We looked at the pay equity ratios of the senior management to their average worker. And we looked at their racial and class inclusivity in terms of who they take care of compared to who they could be taking care of. And we combined all of these into a number, and then we combined that with the other numbers. So allownhospitalsindex.org is the site where you can see last year's results, and we'll be rolling out this year's results in the coming months, starting with overuse. Vikas Sani, MD, Shannon Brownlee, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Our pleasure. Thank you. It was great. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.